From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Ahead of the State of the Union, Americans use words like frustrated and exhausted to describe their feelings about the country. So what might a speech sound like that draws them in? Then the Broncos once again pin their hopes on a Peyton. And later, Lauren Jenkins' mom didn't give him an allowance. She turned their home into a mini-economy and gave him a salary to teach him financial literacy. Now Jenkins helps other young people and adults learn to manage their moolah. Everybody's going to tell you what you should do with your money. And the first thing I tell the people is, I really don't care what you spend your money on, as long as you budget for it. Learn some tricks, whether you're good at this or not. Plus, a new home for an old dog. It's time to part ways with your beloved car, but you want it to go somewhere it'll truly be appreciated. So donate it to CPR. Instead of sitting and gathering dust, your tax-deductible car donation will fuel Colorado Public Radio. You love your old car. Now let it bring you the programs you love. It's so easy and convenient to donate your car at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. President Biden delivers the State of the Union address tomorrow. There's always the question of who will clap for what, whether there's heckling or page tearing. But beyond the walls of Congress, what common ground is there among Americans that the president might address We're going to check back in now with Stephen Hawkins of Englewood. He's research director for More in Common. This is a nonprofit that fights polarization in hopes of preserving democracies globally. And Stephen, thanks for being with us again. Thanks for having me, Ryan. The thoughts you'll share with us are grounded in a survey you conducted along with YouGov. And what stood out to me is that Americans list frustration, disappointment, exhaustion and disgust as their top emotions towards the country. Why do they say that? This is a long-standing trend, right? People feel that Washington, D.C. isn't responsive to them. They're deeply, deeply negative about the political party that they don't support. And I think what's more discouraging to me is that we did a version of this survey four years ago at the midterms. during Donald Trump's presidency. And we see that those negative emotions are around the same level, but the positive emotions that were in the mix four years ago have dropped. Four years ago, a majority of Americans said that they were hopeful, and that's now dropped from down to 42%. And we've also seen a drop in excitement. So there was mixed emotions four years ago, still leaning negative, and now it's really defined by these negative emotions. As you say, frustration, disappointment, exhaustion, disgust. Is it all Washington? Is, I don't know, inflation in the mix there? I paid $5 for Doritos yesterday. Yeah, a bad decision on multiple fronts, I think. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Thank you for judging my choices. Listen, um, this is one of the interesting things that we we did in the survey is we asked Democrats, what do you think are Republicans' priorities? And they said, well, we think that the most common priority is election fraud, stop the steal stuff. Actually, only one in five Republicans listed that as a priority. Number one for them 
was inflation. And the other way round, it works too. We asked Republicans what they thought Democrats' priorities were, and they the number one was LGBTQ issues, or presumably around schools, that was considered to be the number one issue by Republicans. In fact, it was only listed by about one in 12 Democrats. They share the same priority, and that's inflation. And so there is real common ground there in that Republicans and Democrats alike, although they don't perceive it in each other, they're both really concerned about prices. Now, this too is something you've observed over time, which is that people tend to exaggerate the other party mm-hmm. and frankly misconstrue, mm. misperceive. Caricature. Yes, draw caricatures of the other party. Yeah. Where does that come from? Is that because of what we hear at the top from the most powerful in those parties? I think part of it has to do with social media and general traditional media, not to pick on your profession, but the things that are newsworthy are the things that are extreme, that draw people's attention. The moderate voices that might represent a majority of a group aren't the ones that are going to get the retweets. We know that in social media, the things that are that generate outrage are the things that get shared, and the things that generate positive emotions are the things that get scrolled past. And for the social media companies that want high engagement, want people to share things and contribute to the platform, outrage is something which they prioritize. And presumably then, the people doing the speaking, the people being covered by those outlets, see that outrage generates more clicks Mm -hmm. and they feed the machine. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it seems to me that it's a symbiotic relationship of outrage. I think that's right. And I think that there's also a fundraising motivation here that matters too, which is that if you can get on cable news, if your clips go viral, then your ability to fundraise as a member of Congress also improves as opposed to if you're just a moderate, reasonable member of Congress. This is why we bring you on, Stephen Hawkins, is something of an antidote, hopefully, to that. Okay, you measure people's willingness to compromise or to see their leaders do so. What do you find when you ask about compromise in this country? So we found that four years ago, when we first released a report on this subject, we found that there was a majority that supported compromise. They wanted to have not the people that agree with politically, they wanted to see them seek compromise rather than stand their ground and fight. We now see that the country is evenly split on this question between compromise and double down and fight. It used to be majority compromise. Now it's 50-50. A majority of that drop in support for compromise is coming from the left and right fringes, the most politically engaged and the most ideological. So this is where, coming back to the State of the Union address, there's a really tricky dance that President Biden is going to have to do because the country is concerned about political division. It's overwhelmingly sort of top of mind for Americans. They're very discouraged by D.C., At the same time, they're worried about compromise because they see a lot of threat in the other party. And so at the same time that he has to say there's going to be progress, we're going to solve these issues, especially inflation, he has to do so in a way that addresses people's concerns about what's going to be given up in the process. Huh. Yeah, that sounds difficult to achieve. And of course, we now have divided Congress. We have a House that is under Republican control and a Senate narrowly under Democratic control. Despite all this, and and maybe this is the silver lining, Americans lean towards voting for a positive vision of the country versus a negative one. So square what we've heard so far with that idea. So specifically what we asked here was we asked people who voted in 2022 
Were you voting because you liked the vision of the candidates you were supporting, or were you just voting to block the vision, a defensive move to block the vision of the other party? And most Americans actually, slightly to our surprise, said, no, we voted because we agree with the vision of one side. And so there is something positive there, I think. There is um, a common ground around trying to address inflation, which should be a top priority. I think that the Republican newly... Uh, the the new leader of the of the of the House Republicans and of Congress, Kevin McCarthy, has some ground to catch up because of a very bumpy start, a historically bad start for him as getting elected Speaker, and so there's motivation perhaps for him to show that he has control and that he's able to get things done. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. And occasionally we check in with Stephen Hawkins of Englewood. He's research director for this global nonprofit called More in Common. They do all sorts of research and conversations around the idea of fighting polarization in hopes of preserving democracies, uh, not just here, but abroad as well. Okay, we have spoken a lot so far, as I drop my pen, uh, of parties. And yet one thing we know, certainly in Colorado, is that the largest voting bloc is unaffiliated. It's people who do not subscribe to one party or another. How does that play into this, the notion of party identification and what I think of as a trend among younger people not to identify with a party? Yeah, you're right about both of those trends. Younger people more likely to describe as independents. And independents now, this wasn't true if you go back to sort of 2008, for instance, Democrats and Republicans, more people identified with one of the party than is independent. Independent affiliation has grown up, uh-huh. has gone up. They're more negative. We asked uh, uh, people, how would you describe the Republican Party? How would you describe the Democratic Party? Independents were very likely to say about both parties they're hypocritical. They focus too much on attacking the other side. They're too preachy. And independents were, were more likely to say, I'm just voting to stop something bad from happening. And so this concentration of frustration is even more intense among independents who are frustrated with their political parties, with the political parties. That strikes me as a soup where something might be born from. Let's hope so. I think there's a, there are a lot of initiatives to try and find ways of bridging across the political spectrum. Um, there are new political parties that are in discussion. Yeah. Um, but what's clear is that Americans are looking for a reason to be hopeful. That's what's on the on the dissent in our country is a sense of optimism about the future. If I'm President Biden tomorrow, if I were advising President Biden tomorrow, I'd be looking for five stories that would allow me to give people reasons to feel encouraged. I'd be looking to highlight a track record of things that I've done that would help people to feel that there's progress that's coming out of Washington, D.C. And and yes, I think the country needs some energy and some creativity around problem solving because people are not excited about the political parties. Stephen, I've been wanting to ask you about the Overton window. So this is the idea that exceptional behavior resets to some extent what we see as normal. So we do see people, some people, dismissing the seriousness of January 6th, for instance. I think of statements that some politicians make that might have once been disqualifying and uh, now result in a sort of rallying cry. Is the Overton window in this country moving? It's moving, and I think that the 
the reason for it is negative partisanship or the rise in hostility, the rise in what's called affective polarization, which is how warm or cold you feel towards people who you disagree with politically. When that number is moderate, lukewarm, I don't agree with the other side, but I don't hate them. Then there's the capacity to hold your side accountable and to say, we're all Americans. I believe in democratic standards. I believe in ethical norms. We're going to hold you accountable for your misdeed, for your crime, whatever it might be. Mm. But when you sense a very intense and real threat from the other side, then your way of measuring what your own group does starts to change because the alternative of allowing this menacing threat to take power is just to it's too scary. It's And it, it allows people to lower their standards for what their own side does. Well, and you find Americans across party and race overwhelmingly believe the greatest threat to America is from within. 86%. 86%. It's not Russia in their minds. It is domestic. It's not the Chinese weather balloons. Uh-huh. And so the idea there is if you perceive someone in this country, in your own country who disagrees with you as the greatest threat, you are much more likely willing to embrace misdeeds from your own party. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thanks for being with us. There's always more to unpack with you, which is why we'll have you back, Stephen. Thanks so much, Ryan. My pleasure. Stephen Hawkins of Englewood is research director at the global nonprofit More in Common. Ahead of the State of the Union Tuesday, we talked about the group's latest political perceptions survey. I'll make sure there's a link in today's podcast at CPR.org slash Colorado Matters. By the way, Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders We'll deliver the Republican response tomorrow. We will carry it all live on air and online. After a break, a coach who leaves the big easy for a big, tough task. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio called Terra Firma brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. The sounds in nature are like the voices of friends. I know when I hear the first robin every spring what that means. The sound of wind in trees, the bugle of elk. Those are the memories that become the soundtrack to our lives. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. This time next week, we'll know who the Super Bowl champions will be. We have known for a while who it won't be. This team plays with no passion, no energy, because this team right now, I see them fighting each other more than I see them fighting the, the opponent, and that can't be. Former NFL coach Rex Ryan talking about the Denver Broncos. The team entered 2022 with mile-high expectations, but missed the playoffs for a seventh straight season. Yet there is optimism once again, which we'll talk about with former Bronco Ryan Harris. Ryan, glad to have you in our studio this time. Honored to be with you, brother. Sean Payton, former New Orleans Saints coach, will lead Denver after Nathaniel Hackett was fired during the season. What is... Peyton bring to the table. He brings discipline, details, production. He brings experience winning from 20 to 17 to 2020. He won four consecutive division titles. So he knows not only how to have success, 
but the most important lesson, how to handle success. And so he's going to be detail-oriented with players and demanding a lot of them. And I can tell you as a champion, Ron, you need a coach to do that. Because even if you're Russell Wilson, the game changes every year and you need a coach, you need a boss to push you to a new level. And the way to do it in football is through paying attention to the details. And they got one of the best in the business in Sean Payton. You mentioned Russell Wilson, the quarterback. Many expectations were piled on him, and he has so far not necessarily met those. You use the word production, Mm -hmm. that Sean Payton brings production. What does that mean? That means a ton of points, a ton of offense, players moving fast, formations that are going to be catching your eye even before the ball is snapped. And more more than what you're going to see as fans, As players, they're going to get production. One of the best tight ends in the game over the last 20 years, Ben Watson, had his best season with Sean Payton. And he said it's because Sean Payton, even though he's a head coach, was down on the field with him, showing him each and every route, how to get open, what what the quarterback's looking at. And only a few coaches know how to do that. I talked with Mike Shanahan, legendary coach of the Broncos here, and he said one of the things people miss is that as a head coach, you have to coach every position. And if you talk to anybody that played with Sean Payton, they'll tell you he's coaching every position on the field throughout the week. That's what production means. Is that micromanagement, Ryan Harris? Could that get, <laughs> could that get annoying for a player? Absolutely it gets annoying, right? <laughs> Absolutely. But we have to remember our nature will not make us great, right? We have to go to a new level. And at the end of the day, with, with the money players make and everything that goes along with playing in professional sports, you still want a coach like you did in high school, in college, that maybe bothered you but got you to a level where you needed to be. So absolutely, it's annoying, and that's what we need to be successful. Well, this is interesting because you said that uh, he might not only bring success, but the ability to deal with it, manage yes. it, live with it. Why is that important? Because it's it's easy to forget you still have a lot of work to do. It's the number one reason for failure in football, and, and really sports in general. You have success. Like, look at the Dallas Cowboys in this playoff season. They had a huge first game in the playoffs and then really did not perform. You have to understand that consistency in the NFL means constantly getting better. And so it's easy when you win and you drive home, you go to Park Meadows Mall or fans know you, they say hi to you in King Supers, but you're going to lose at some point in the NFL and you have to be built to overcome that. And so handling winning is knowing, hey, we had a great success week two, week 15, and this is our goal. We still need to get better. We're willing to work. So much in professional sports probably feeds the ego, makes your head big. And the idea is you've got to stay humble. That's what I'm hearing you say. I think that's true in my profession as well. I think any number of people listening will resonate with that idea, even if they don't play professional sports. Okay, Sean Payton, 59. He'll be formally introduced today at team headquarters. Uh, Payton coached the Saints, indeed, from 20. uh, 2006 to 2021, winning the mm. Super Bowl in 09, beating an Indianapolis Colts team led by Peyton Manning, <laughs> who, of course, went on to lead Denver to its last Super Bowl victory in 15. Since Manning retired, the Broncos had a revolving door of quarterbacks that was supposed to end with the arrival of Russell Wilson, but he struggled mightily in his first season in Denver. When I watch Russell Wilson, he just looks shot. And I've been evaluating aging quarterbacks for 20-plus years in the league. Once they hit the wall, they don't come back. Everybody wants that magic that they'll come back. They don't come back. He looks like one of the worst quarterbacks 
in football and can't get anything going. The confidence is not there. The vision is not there. The playmaking is not there. His teammates don't believe in him. So it was a hard fall. That was former New York Giants executive Mark Ross. Again, Wilson, who may well be elected to the Hall of Fame someday, was the cause of all the optimism before last season. And you, Ryan Harris, certainly weren't alone in predicting great things. But the Broncos' offense was arguably the worst in the NFL. What what do you think happened? Well, one, you had a lot of injuries. Over $60 million of, at that time, around $215 million was on the injured reserve, meaning players couldn't play. Tim Patrick was one of those players. Javante Williams, running back, became one of those players. So you lost a lot of starters. The other thing, and I won't get too specific, but there were a lot of things in the building going on that were just making it uh, a bit of a clown show. Coaches not being uh, um, accountable to players, players not knowing whether they're playing or not or, or what position they're going to play even in a game. So there was just a lot that happened that typically happens with a first-time head coach that will be very, very different with Sean Payton at, at the helm. And one of the things I'm interested in, and I'll be down at the uh, press conference today, yeah. asking Sean Payton, what did he learn being away? You and I love our profession, and if we were away for it, took a sabbatical for a year, we would hope that we get better or learn a new perspective. And that's going to be the most interesting thing. We know what Sean Payton has done as a head coach, the success he's had with quarterbacks like Drew Brees and hopefully Russell Wilson. But what did he learn while he was gone that will make him better for Russell Wilson and and Broncos country. Because he was still signed on with the Saints, but he had stepped back from yes. coaching. So uh, you're wondering if he improved his headspace. Absolutely. What might that time have afforded him? Uh, more on Russell Wilson. He came to Denver after losing a power struggle in Seattle, where he played for 10 seasons. There were hints of problems in his relationship with teammates when he left. They resurfaced in Denver. At one point, there was a viral video of defensive player yelling at him on the sidelines. Um, does he, I don't know. Does he have, like, fences to mend in the Broncos' locker room, do you think? He has to reestablish and reintroduce himself for sure. Um, and coming into being a leader, saying I'm going to be this leader, and then maybe finding out what that entails is different for people. And that's a lot of change, right? To ask anybody to come over in one season and be a leader of 53 people, that's tough. Also, Russell Wilson had a torn labrum in his throwing shoulder since week three. So he played injured practically all season last year. So he has to show guys he's healthy, but also he has to show guys how to fall in line with Sean Payton. And the good news is Russell Wilson already had called Sean Payton weeks before he became the head, announced the head coach. So these two have already begun to work on their relationship. And one constant theme with head coach Sean Payton is he demands a lot of his leaders. So there's already been conversations to help Russell with the leadership piece. But Russell has to get healthy and play better. Well, it's interesting. Uh, Wilson tweeted, thank God for a new day. <laughs> at the announcement of Sean Payton. Yeah, you want that excitement for sure. You, Absolutely. You believe that's genuine. Absolutely. I mean, w one of the things is, as a player, especially in the NFL, you get to a level where if your coach doesn't understand the game at the same level as you, you're not going to be able to speak the same language in solving problems. But he knows now with Sean Payton, there's not a question offensively he can bring that's going to uh, that's going to flummox Sean Payton. The defense knows they're going to get challenged every day in practice because Sean Payton's a brilliant offensive mind. So, it, that's, again, the beginning of how to buy in. It's a, great, it's a great day, Russell Wilson says, and that's what you want. It sounds like Nathaniel Hackett is being cast as the fall guy for most of what went wrong with the Broncos last season, although you point to injuries and a more nuanced picture, which is part of the reason we speak with you, Ryan Harris. <laughs> um, 
you know, before the year started, Hackett was lauded as this energetic personality destined for success, but that just wasn't the case. How much do you think Hackett's lack of success is about the new ownership, the disarray in the front office? I'd say zero. Knowing what I know now about how Nathaniel Hackett operated here, and I like Nathaniel Hackett. We're both Star Wars fans. Um, (laughs) But you have to – you cannot be – friend to your players in the NFL. You have to maintain that coach-player relationship, even if you want to be friends with somebody. And just and Nathaniel Hackett just did not do that. And he didn't know how to criticize players, which a lot of owners and a lot of businesses here in this city don't know how to criticize effectively, right? Constructive criticism. Huh. But he just didn't know how to criticize at all. And so players could not improve, didn't know who to talk to, and there was a lack of leadership from the players on the team as well. Okay, I'm convinced this morning... Ryan Harris, that Peyton is the most popular name in football. (laughs) So obviously Peyton Manning. Then you've got Sean Peyton. They're all spelled differently. I want to bring in a third Peyton. We learned that it's not the general manager, George Peyton, who has ushered in the Sean Peyton era. It's really Greg Penner, the Walmart board chair, who made this possible. And who says, by the way, Sean Peyton is going to report to me. Is there still trouble in paradise? Absolutely not. This is a reorganization of the structure of the Broncos organization and done so with one of the brilliant business minds, multiple of the brilliant business minds in this nation, in Greg Penner as well as Condoleezza Rice and Melody Hobson, who are also part of the ownership group. So this is what this is what happens, and this is what the Broncos needed. I mean, we're all going to watch a Super Bowl that includes one team from the division the Broncos play in, in the Kansas City Chiefs, and a team that has now gone back to the Super Bowl since Denver won it. So you got the Philadelphia Eagles who've been there twice now since 2017, and and you got the Chiefs who have been there for a few years over Patrick Mahomes' time. You need new things to reach new heights, and that's what Greg Penner and this ownership group are doing. A part of this deal. Uh, is that the Broncos are going to lose a fair bit of draft capital right. in exchange for Sean Payton as coach. Does that worry you? Uh, it does not worry me because this team is so close. They have talent on defense, Justin Simmons, many other players. They have talent on offense and Jerry Judy, Greg Dulcich, the tight end. Um, this team is close, and typically it takes two to three years for, for rookies at any job to know what they're doing. And, and that first-round pick, although it sounds heavy, if you have a coach that can help you win and get to the playoffs, it's worth it. You know, it was fascinating, Ryan. Earlier you talked about injuries in terms of dollars. Of course that makes sense. I just I don't think I've heard it put that way. Oh, yeah. That's the NFL. You lose money when you get hurt. Uh, DeMar Hamlin, who we all saw from the Buffalo Bills, got hit and had the cardiac episode. Uh, there was a chance that he wasn't going to get the rest of his salary. They put a split in it. I, I got injured through a uh, game before a three and a half million dollar bonus, you know, and, wow. and that kind of thing. But that's where you have to grow as a person, as a player. It can never be about the money. Do you love it? Do you work on it when no one's looking? That's what makes you great. Former Bronco, now national broadcaster and analyst Ryan Harris discussing Denver's incoming coach Sean Payton, who will reportedly make in the neighborhood of $18 million a year, by the way. Ryan Harris is author of Mindset for Mastery, an NFL champion's guide to reaching your greatness.
and Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour with something many families say you shouldn't talk about, money. We'll kick off a new series about personal finances. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Look around as you drive and you'll see that Colorado has many different kinds of license plates. I really like the uh, American Indian Scholar plate, uh, the American Horse plate, the Rocky Mountain National Park plate. But how many specialty designs are there? And which one is the most popular? Find out on Colorado Wonders, Monday on Morning Edition and All Things Considered, here on CPR News and at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. How big should your salary be to maximize your personal well-being? Lauren Jenkins developed an answer to that question and shares it with kids and adults around Colorado. Jenkins quit his job in finance to help young people become more financially literate. Work he does as well through the Denver Housing Authority. And Lauren, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Your education startup is called Mini Money. I want to start, though, with your mom. When you were a kid, she turned your home in Longmont into kind of like a company? We had a household economy, is what she called it. We had to go through job interviews first. Oh. So we asked my mom to go out to eat every single week, and she got fed up with it. And so she said, okay. So we came downstairs, and there was a job opening for son and for daughter on the refrigerator. And we had to apply for the positions. We had to fill out a resume. So we got paid a salary every single week. And then we had to pay for rent. We had to pay for utilities. We had to pay for laundry. And her big thing was that it was more expensive to go out to eat than it was to stay at home. I actually lost my money at one point, so I had to take out a loan from the bank. How did you lose your money? Uh, my little sister stole it, and she'll never admit to it, but she did, in <laughs> fact, <laughs> steal my finances. But my mom's claim to fame is that by the time we got to the end of the summer, she asked us, hey, do you guys want to go out to eat? We said, no, mom, that's way too expensive. And so from a very young age, we just understood what money was because we used it every day and it made sense to us. And that's what we try to give back to kids today. And so you learned how much more value there was in eating at home and like what the markup was in eating out. I wonder if you then started thinking about other aspects of your life through that filter. I mean... We got paid to do our chores, so uh -huh. we did our chores, and so I was like, okay, well, where am I going to spend my money? Do I want to play video games today? Do I want to watch TV today? But it started to get to the point where we would compare the two. It's like, do I have enough money to play video games today? No, let me just read a book, make a little bit of extra money. We can watch mm -hmm. a movie tonight, because that was a system that she had set up. It seems that you speak of this in almost admiring terms now, but I wonder if as a kid, you kind of despised it. The worst part for me were the video games. And I actually ended up taking a loan from my little sister to play video games for a few weeks in a row. And she actually has been great with her money ever since. And I've always kind of skated by a little bit. So old habits die hard. Amazing. And so the notion of an allowance became a salary in this home economy. You then studied economics in college and worked in finance in London. Do you think that's because of your mom, by the way? What's cool to me was to look at economics after doing the household economy. So to see how the basic principle of economics was stuff that my mom had been teaching me since I was like seven, eight years old. What was it like working in finance in London? I, I actually watched a TV drama set in that kind of environment, and it seems really intense. 
and like there's maybe not a lot of sleep and there's a ton of competition. Are all those things true? A hundred and ten percent. I would wake up at five in the morning and, you know, eat breakfast, take about an hour, hour, 15 minute train ride to work. Then you work about a 12 hour day. So you work seven to seven most days. You take about an hour train ride home. And You're so just I, like a finance machine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some of my roommates told me at the time, like, we haven't seen you for like two weeks. So I think the work life balance was a lot off and it is an extremely competitive market. I mean, we're in one of the financial centers of the world. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I think. I got into economics because I like the study of people and how people deal with money. And my opinions or my views on a majority of the people in the finance industry are that they're not out to help people. They're there to make a profit and they're there to make money. And I learned that very, very quickly. Is that why you quit? Yeah. So my, my manager at the time said, if you want to help, I said, we're not helping anybody. And he said, if you want to help people, you'll never make any money. And I'm a little bit stubborn. And I took that as a challenge. Oh, Okay, I feel like it's time for the big reveal. What is the ideal salary for our emotional well-being? So right now it's about $70,000. $70,000. Is that specific to place? In other words, do you account for Colorado in that? Yeah, so I use Denver as a whole. So $70,000-ish is where you're going to be able to take care of your basic human needs. Now, basic human needs is not just the fact that you can eat, sleep, and you have a roof over your head. It's do you have mental well-being? Are you emotionally well? So you start from zero to 70K, your happiness level is going to rise, 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 rise. You get to 70K and it's going to even out between about 70K and 120K. Okay. And then once you get to $120,000, your happiness level is actually going to start to decline. That's the kind of more money, more problems moment. Exactly. Uh-huh. Most, yeah, most times it comes with you don't have enough time to spend the money that you're making or you're not doing a position or a job that truly like fills that passion and that purpose. So after you get your basic needs met, the only way that you're going to start to add Happiness is through passion and purpose, feeling like what you're doing matters. Did you arrive at these numbers through personal experience or studying something bigger? There's actually, they've done a decent amount of research on money and happiness as a whole. Like a lot of the research that I've done is around the psychology of money. So when you look there, I mean, there have been plenty of studies to show that at certain income levels, people are more and less happy. Uh And so if you take those trends, I mean, it makes sense with the way that you see people work. Like a lot of super high earners aren't the happiest all the time. And a lot of people who aren't making the most feel very fulfilled. So I think it's a combination of research and then personal experience. Well, just to be completely indelicate, what were you earning at the height of those London days? (laughs) So I was probably making... 70 to 80,000 at the time. Oh. And so this is like fresh out of school. So I had more money than I ever knew what to do with. But I would say well, I've been doing mini money for the last three years and we have made not nearly as much as I made in a year. And I've never been happier. Oh. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And if you're just joining us, my guest is Lauren Jenkins. He has a financial education startup called Mini Money sharing lessons with kids and adults around Colorado. This is work that he does as well through the Denver Housing Authority. We asked one of your students about this, middle schooler Isabel Jaramillo, who lives in Antonito in the San Luis Valley. You taught a course there and hosted a run club last summer, I guess combining physical and financial health. And we asked Isabel if it was surprising to hear that over about $120,000, It may not help your happiness to make more money. It kind of was. A lot of people assume that the more money you have, the more things you could buy and get for yourself. 
but he explained it to us where you could have all the money you want, but that you could be sick and not be able to do anything with it. Or you could be poor and have nothing, but still have happiness. I think that at an extent that is true because a lot of things you can't just buy for yourself or others and make everything better. Lauren, why tell a middle schooler or a high schooler what salary they should aim for? Because most kids don't have that conversation. And so you get out of school and the only thing most kids will think about is, well, I need to earn as much as I possibly can. I need to earn, I need to earn, I need to earn. But if nobody talks to you about your mental well-being or your happiness or your purpose or your passion, then you never know to look for it. And so, so many times people will go through bad jobs and then try to find their purpose, their happiness, and their passion. And that's not to say that kids shouldn't go try to make a lot of money. Uh It's just figuring out what works for you. So the earlier we can introduce it to them, maybe they don't have to go through the same struggles and the difficulties that we've had to go through looking for jobs and looking for happiness. But we've also gotten the messages so often that it's impolite to talk about money. I mean, even when I asked you how much you earned in London, right, I prefaced it with, I don't mean to be (laughs) indelicate. Do we need to change how we think about talking about money? A hundred percent. And I mean, it's something that I struggle with. I work with people every day one-on-one with money, and I still struggle when I ask, how much do you make? But if we can't start to have these open conversations, then you're always going to feel like you're on an island or you're going to feel like you're crazy. The more isolated people feel with money, the more that they'll go into a hole, the more that they'll... Like a little, like a, like a debt hole? You mean like a, a debt hole, whether it's either a debt hole, you could have too much credit, or honestly, you could potentially just start to make too much money that you don't know what to do with your hat. Like you have too much money to, to manage. And you could also have not a lot of money, but if you know that there's other people around you who are successful, or you know that it's okay not to have that much money, then the way that you're going to approach it and the way that the conversation is going to go is going to look a whole lot different. Financial success is going to look different for everybody. If you even look at commercials, you look at investing, you look at everybody's going to tell you what you should do with your money. And the first thing I tell the people is I really don't care what you spend your money on as long as you budget for it. Everybody's financial goals are going to look different. Financial success for every single person is going to look so different. Finances are extremely personal and they're extremely emotional. But at the end of the day, money is a tool. It's not good or evil. We could put a hammer on this table right now and it's a tool. Somebody good could pick it up, they could build a house. Somebody bad could pick it up and they could go hurt somebody. Money works in the same way. It's a tool. Now, it definitely has a big impact on our emotions, but once people see money as a tool and them controlling it and not it controlling them, they say, okay, well, if I want to buy a house, then my money needs to work for me to go buy a house. Do you try to take out some of the emotion? I try to bring awareness to the emotion. If I've got somebody who always feels anxious when they think about money, what I'll tell them is you're not going to not feel anxious, but when you feel anxious, go check your budget. Go look at it. Go do another budget. And that's going to bring down the anxiety. Fascinating, because I think about how much of my behavior today is related to my childhood experiences, my relationship with my parents. And that's true for finances as well. And our relationship with money, these things are forged early. Yeah. So actually, at the age of five, kids will have a natural response to money. And it's not genetic. We call them, they're either going to be tightwads or spendthrifts. So they're going to feel pain (laughs) when they spend money or they're going to feel pleasure when they spend money. And so we tell people that it's important to be aware of what your natural tendencies are. Because if you know that you're a spendthrift, then don't bring your credit card to the mall. 
I'm not saying don't go to the mall. I'm not saying don't shop. I'm just saying know how you naturally are based towards money, and then we can make a plan to fix it or and to move forward. Yeah. It's so affirming, right? Because it's not telling someone they're wrong. Mm-hmm. It's giving them workarounds. Mm-hmm. To start talking to people about money who've never really had this conversation before, I understand you put their own money situation into a societal context, right? Explain this for us. I mean, if you want to look at the racial relations behind it, if you want to look at class, like there's so many different things that come into how people deal with money. Like we've got people at the Denver Housing Authority that have been there for five generations and they've never had access to more capital. Now, if you look at a 13-year-old kid and her mom's been in public housing, her grandma's been in public housing, her great-grandma's been in public housing, what does that kid start to think? Well, maybe this is just where I belong. Mm. So if you can't tell, if you can't show that kid that, this has nothing to do with you. You were just born into this situation. Now what are we going to do to get you out of it? There's so many ways and it's so easy for people to get off on the wrong foot with finances. And also there's no education around it. You get, if you're lucky, maybe two classes on money from the time you're, what, five to the time you graduate college if you go to school. How we expect people to be good with their money. Okay, maybe some more brass tacks. How do you advise people to save when they start making money? Mm, Make goals that you care about. So the number one, so as human beings, we psychologically are built to spend money that we receive. We get it in and we want to spend however much we have available. Oh, that's, so, that's kind of our resting pulse is to want to spend money? Exactly. Interesting. So we, and it's, it's, it's just human behavior. So what we tell people is, A, save first. You'll hear that 10 ways from Sunday. Save first. As soon as you pay, save first, save first. But if people don't know what they're saving up for and why they're saving up for, they're not going to save their money. So I'll tell people, write down your goals, put up a picture of it. Because when you see that picture and when you have a goal that you actually care about, not investing because somebody told you to invest, you want to buy a car so you could take your kid to school. Well, put that up on the wall and you say, you know what, instead of going to Starbucks, I'm going to save this money because I want to take care of my family. It becomes your true north. It becomes your true north. Yeah. Exactly. What age or what stage should someone get a credit card? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I'm going <laughs> to share a memory from college. I signed up for a credit card at one point because they were offering free boxer shorts. <laughs> I mean, let's talk about a misguided or completely unguided <laughs> financial decision, Lauren. Mm. But you know, this was also credit card companies knowing how to kind of lure a young person. Again, same thing with money. I don't think credit and debt are good or evil. They are tools. But it becomes the conversation of not when you should get a credit card, but what do you want that credit card for? Oh. If credit is going to serve a purpose in your life, then yeah, let's come up with a, a healthy way for you to have a credit card. It's a little bit related to your approach to savings. Have the thing in mind mm-hmm. that is prompting you to do this behavior. When other piece we talk about is where do you use your credit card? So it's not if you should use a credit card, it's where. Okay. So we only use it on our needs, not our wants. So any fund spending, don't do on your credit card. You do out of cash. You do out of cash or you do out of like a, a completely separate account. Wait, are you hinting at the idea that you have a needs account and a want account? So yeah, I probably should have led with this. The easiest thing that I tell people is have a savings account, one or two savings accounts, a need account, and then a want account. Huh. So you want to make sure like at the end of the day, we should enjoy our money. The why work all the doggone why work all the time if You can say doggone on the radio, Lord, it's okay. <laughs> That's good. 
<laughs> I was about to curse. <laughs> we, we always tell people, why do all of these things if you're not going to enjoy the fruits of your labor? Mm-hmm. And so it's just about making sure that you enjoy the fruits of your labor while you don't impact your future and you don't impact your needs for the day. So after you save, after you take care of your needs, we always, I call it the ball out account. Ball out. Put all that money on a separate card. If you want to go out to the casino, if you want to go to the bars, if you want, whatever you feel like doing with your money, as long as you've taken care of your future and your needs are met today, go wild. Why don't we hear just a little more from Isabel and Antonito about her experience with your group Mini Money? So a lot of adults don't really like seem to want to talk about money as much. So going into this, everything was open. They answered every question. Usually in high school is when you start making money and a lot of people don't know what to do with it and end up spending a lot of it. And then once you get to college, you end up being in a lot of debt. But now I think I'm more prepared for my future and know what to expect going into the real world. How do you separate the power that someone has in managing their personal finances from the true systemic issues that prevent people from advancing financially? I kind of say, so I've got an athlete's background. So I always, I kind of teach people money with a chip on their shoulder. If you've got systemic issues, if there's forces that are moving against you, Mm -hmm. I say we fight it head up. And so to me, it's almost, uh, that's almost more of an empowerment thing to say, you're right. This system is set up against you. So what are we going to do about it? Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Lauren Jenkins is founder of Mini Money. He also works with folks through the Denver Housing Authority. This is the first conversation in an occasional series about learning to manage money. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Mount Princeton was once an active volcano. When it erupted 36 million years ago, it sent a cloud of debris nearly 100 miles northeast to what is now Castle Rock. A 20-foot layer of pumice and ash covered the area. Some of this material turned into large deposits of erosion-resistant rhyolite. A few million years of flooding and scouring exposed the iconic castle-shaped butte that gives the city its name. Early people used the stone in arrowheads and spear points, but it's preferred as a construction material. Rhyolite quarries actually put Castle Rock on the map. The pinkish gray stone was shipped around Colorado and out of state for use in foundations, veneer, and decorative trim. Today you can see rhyolite in a number of older buildings in Douglas County and in the sprawling Highlands Ranch Mansion, a modern-day castle, if you will, with hints of Castle Rock. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Copeland Company. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If you've ever mourned the loss of a pet, you know the love they give and the void they leave behind. That bittersweet reality makes it hard for senior animals to get adopted. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg introduces us to an old dog who's found a new home despite a grave diagnosis. Bendu is brown and white, with short fur and a floppy mouth. He loves eating wet food along with his kibble. And he really loves his crinkly toy, shaped like a fried egg. His new Grand Junction foster family, Sophia Sinkovich and Kyle Chu, watch him with a mix of delight and pride. 
Each little thing is so precious and so cute. And I was telling Kyle that we feel like new parents. You know, we have all these photos of him on our phone and we're telling our family about him. He's got this droopy, droopy (laughs) face and, you know, a lot of saliva um, in his mouth. And he's just looking at me. um, But you you can almost make out a smile. It seems hard to believe that this goofy boy, named after a Star Wars character, has only 6 to 12 months to live. Bendu was found running loose in Palisade on Thanksgiving Day. After being taken to the county shelter, he was estimated to be about 10 years old and diagnosed with cancer. Sophia's the one that saw an Instagram post trying to find Bendu a home. I looked at his face and that was it. Like, I was lost. An instant heart connection, she says. She remembers looking over at Kyle. I said, babe, I gotta ask you something. (laughs) At first, Kyle was nervous. He had never had a dog. But the couple soon agreed on a Bendu meet and greet. And one of the first things he did was he just sat right on my lap. He butt claimed, right? Like he (laughs) just kind of decided, oh, these are my people. And he leaned into us and was just so sweet. And Kyle's fears. They just all went out the window. Um, And so, you know, in that moment, we're like, yes, this is happening. This feels good. It's what people in the animal rescue world always hope for. But according to Nan McNeese, president of Grand Rivers Humane Society... There's a national all the way down to local crisis. Speaking at a rainy adoption event, she says there's a growing number of dogs and cats in need, especially senior ones. And there's not enough adopters. And as the price of all of our commodities went up, the adoptions went down. Her group has worked with Mesa County Animal Services since 2005, often with hard luck cases like Bendu. And with their help, the county no longer euthanizes animals due to space. Grand Rivers adopts out up to 300 dogs a year. But McNeese says many local shelters are now often too full to accept new animals. It's awful because that's not how we're wired. We're wired to help. She says the public can help by supporting their local trusted rescue. And if they can, by giving an animal a foster or forever home. When I meet Bendu, he's only been in his three days. But he looks in his element, giving kisses to his new family and even strangers like me. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Giving Bendu the safe space holds extra meaning for the couple. Kyle's parents died of cancer. So did Sophia's dad. Having Bendu will help me, I think, heal some of that loss of my father and just what I couldn't process then. I feel like I'll be able to continue to process with Bendu. Instead of hardening their hearts against more loss. I think this is helping us cherish every single moment, um, you know, with each other, but also, also with Bendu. Whether it's going to the dog park or just like, a snore snuggle session on the couch. Like it's, I don't have trouble worrying about the future when I'm with him. Yeah, go get it. (laughs) Especially when he's running around the backyard, chasing after a tennis ball. Come on, better drop it. Though he's still learning, he has to give it back. Ready? This one's gonna go high. Sharing this time together is a gift to all three of them, no matter how many days Bendu has left. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Where'd he go?
And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to these loyal friends. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You're with CPR News and KRCC.